From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, a nurse in Crested Butte quarantined for more than two months. What her test results suggest about the different ways the virus shows up in people. Then, looking for hope in the pandemic. So it does seem to be working, and that's kind of an anecdotal response. We'll get an update on convalescent plasma treatments and meet a man who's ready to donate a third time. I'm just happy to give it to anybody because, I mean, they're in dire straits and they need help. You know, you just can't walk by. you got to lend a hand, and that's the way I think society should be. Plus, voters in Pueblo reject a plan for the city to run the utilities. What that decision could mean for renewable energy. And a new podcast matches up singles for virtual dates, then tells their stories. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Nurse practitioner Lisa Merck was one of the first people in Gunnison County to come down with the novel coronavirus. That was in mid-February. After more than two months in quarantine at her Crested Butte home and after 13 virus tests, she finally got some good news this week. She's virus-free. But her illness is drawing attention at the Centers for Disease Control because it lasted so long. Lisa, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. I have to ask, how does it feel to finally be rid of COVID-19 after this long? It feels wonderful. I'm excited and I'm happy to move on with my life and, you know, get back into the public sector and my practice in the clinic. And you've described your illness as a roller coaster. Are you totally off that ride? Are all of your symptoms gone? I am symptom-free. I'm feeling very, very good. The only, I think, one symptom that I have is just I feel a little tired and fatigued when I go out and, you know, maybe take a little hike. I went for my first hike a couple days ago, and I just felt really, you know, tired. But I think that's to be expected. I normally exercise, and uh, I wasn't able to really go out and do the things that I do for two months. So I have to slowly work back at it. That is a long time to be cooped up. Um, And as we mentioned, (laughs) the CDC is looking into your case. How did that come about? Well, because I had so many tests, um, after the first few tests, the local department, um, they sent me to the state. um, And so I worked with um, a doctor at the state, and then the doctor at the state was working with the CDC. And so after a while, when I kept getting the positive, indeterminate, negative testing, it was just so, you know, back and forth. She put me in touch with uh, the CDC, and so I talked to the local CDC twice, as well as worked with the state um, public health department uh, regarding my testing. Now, you made a Facebook video early on in your home isolation, and it went viral. Since then, other coronavirus sufferers from around the world have shared their stories with you on social media. Have you heard from others with relatively mild forms of the illness who have also not been able to shake the virus for very long spells? I have. I've heard from people all over the world. um, And, you know, I've had a a great outreach, uh, pouring of support. Um, A lot of people are saying that their symptoms are lasting anywhere from two weeks to eight weeks right now. Um, I also started a poll uh, online. Uh, through Facebook. Just as a healthcare provider, I wanted to know what some of the statistics were 
and then I've joined other groups. And it seems like anywhere from two weeks to eight, nine plus weeks, um, people are having symptoms. Some days they say that they feel really well, and then other days they just feel crummy. So it's it's a mystery virus, you know, and that was the same thing that was happening to me. I would feel really well, and then I thought, okay, I'm over this, and then the next day I would have shortness of breath. I'd have a little wheezing. I'd feel tired. I'd feel nauseous. Um, so the symptoms were just really all over the place. Yeah, that's such a range of symptoms and such a range of times. Uh, Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Your illness began with sniffles on a flight home from Hawaii on February 19th. How did this effect, infection evolve for you? So I don't really know where I picked it up. The incubation period is anywhere from 2 to 14 days. Um, and so we're not really quite sure. We were in the middle. My husband and I were in the, um, on a We went on a trip over to Hawaii for a medical conference, and then we also, after the medical conference, we just kind of played over there for a little while. And um, that was around February 3rd, and then on February 8th, we started coming back home to Colorado. Um, On the day that we left Hawaii, I felt, you know, a runny nose and sneezing, and then I started having a little left neck and back pain right between my shoulder blades, right where the the nerves innervate in your spine. And so I started having some back pain. Then once we got back, I just thought, well, maybe it was just from carrying a backpack because we hiked and biked and just did a lot of activities over there. And then we carried 20 to 30 pound backpacks throughout our whole trip. So I came back and got a massage and then I started feeling okay. And I watched my little nephew and um, just kind of went around town and did what I normally do. I wasn't really symptomatic at all. Um, except for the looking back, the neck pain and the sneezing. And then on March 1st, my husband and I both started having um, a fever, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. His only lasted a couple days and mine lasted three days. And then March 2nd, I tested uh, myself and my husband for influenza. I have a little clinic in town, so I tested us for influenza, and that was negative. And then on March 2nd, we also called the CDC and the local health department because we, you know, had a lot of travel. And so we wanted to make sure that we didn't have anything associated with COVID. And they told us that we didn't meet the criteria for COVID-19 testing. And then my symptoms that week Hmm. just progressively, um, you know, got worse. So on March 8th, I went, I had my husband take me to the emergency room because I was just feeling very fatigued and diaphoretic, and I was having shortness of breath and then pain in my lower lobes of my lungs, and I was really dehydrated. So he took me into the ER, and they did a full workup on me, and then the COVID-19 test, and then on March 11th, it came back positive. Now, so many people have not even been able to get a single test who are believed to have coronavirus. And like you said, that first time that you you weren't able to get tested, but now you've had more than a dozen. How did you manage Mm -hmm. that level of testing? Well, so since um, because I'm a healthcare worker, I'm an advanced practice nurse. Um, There's two different strategies that uh, healthcare providers can follow. There's a test-based strategy and there's a non-test-based strategy. So if a healthcare worker decides to go down the path of being extra cautious and extra conservative, they can do the the test-based strategy. And the test-based strategy, you have to have two negative COVID-19 tests at least 24 hours apart. Well, I never achieved that until day 58. 
and so that's why they that's why I had so many tests. So I'd have a test, it it would come back negative, and then I had another test, it would come back positive, and then another one would come back indeterminate, and then I would have a negative, mm. and then a positive, and a pos- So it was just nothing was really consistent. And then finally, um, my husband and I just decided to take matters into our own hands. And through my clinic, um, I have I work with LabCorp, and so I started doing my testing on April 23rd through LabCorp, and I got three consistent negative COVID-19 tests in a row. And after yes. talking to the state, she said, if I get the two negatives from LabCorp, that we can move on from there. What a saga. Have infectious disease specialists been able to give you any clues as to why you stayed positive for so long? Well, I think that there's just a lot of unknowns about the illness right now. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's some more research that, that's coming out. Um, they did a study in Korea, and they thought that patients in Korea were testing positive. But really what they were finding is um, dead fragments of the, um, the virus instead of live virus. And so they were just assuming that those people were positive or saying that they were reinfected or that it was coming back. But now after, I think, further testing, they're saying it's just it was dead fragments that they were picking up. So I think a lot Mm -hmm. of this is just, you know, trial by error and trial by fire. And um, unfortunately, like I was just caught in that and, you know. Um, part of the research. In the few seconds we have left, do you think your case is proof mm-hmm. that there may be many people walking around shedding the virus long after they have no symptoms? Absolutely, I do. Um, you know, I also did antibody testing and it did match up with um, me being positive at certain points and then I did have symptoms. Um, so I feel like people probably are positive, you know, a good 21 to 30 days out after they get it. I think it, it you know, people are shedding and they just don't know it. Um, but I'm not 100% sure. So I think it's just, you know, in the research right now. And we'll find out a lot more after, you know, we do continue doing research on this and other countries are doing research on it as well. But I do feel like that we're shedding There's longer so than much we, we are learning. think. <laughs> yeah, I do. Lisa, I do thank you like so much for joining shedding. us today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for having me. Lisa Merck is it. a nurse... Lisa Merck is a nurse practitioner in Cresta Butte. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is committed to covering emerging stories and delving deeply into the details of what's happening now without fear, hype, or compromise. This vital news coverage, as well as CPR's essential music service, is made possible through community support. If you're a member of CPR, thank you. Your support ensures impartial journalism, statewide coverage, and an informed public. Help sustain this community resource. Donate at CPR.org. There's been a lot of talk recently about using plasma as a possible treatment for COVID-19 patients. It's not a cure. But it is offering hope. At Colorado hospitals, doctors are transfusing antibodies from donors who have recovered from the virus into critically ill patients who need as much help as possible to try to strengthen their immune systems. We want to explore how that works and what doctors are learning. Joining us is Dr. Kyle Annan with the Children's Hospital Colorado. CHC is collecting convalescent plasma. Dr. Annan is the first doctor in Colorado and one of the first in the U.S. to infuse convalescent plasma into a coronavirus coronavirus patient. Welcome to the show. Thank you. In March, you received a desperate phone call from the university hospital asking for a huge favor. 
Tell us about what happened. So on March 31st, I received a phone call from my colleague over at the university. Um, As you said, there was a specific patient who was critically ill, and that patient's family really wanted him to receive convalescent plasma. And the FDA had only just approved the ability to use convalescent plasma specifically for COVID-19 under a compassionate use protocol known as an IND or an investigation of the drug process. And that had only been approved for a few days prior to this particular event. Um, none of the blood donor centers in the country um, so far uh, had, were kind of up and running and ready to start collecting convalescent plasma. They were certainly working on it, and they intended to be able to collect in another week or so. But it was just too new, um, and they hadn't been able to recruit um, any donors or enact the process yet. So I thought that since the Children's Hospital Colorado Blood Donor Center is you know, kind of smaller, has kind of the ability to move very quickly, I thought that we could actually manage to figure this out in a short period of time. So we, uh, we did. We were able to find a donor who was eligible under all of the criteria at the time. Um, we had that donor come in and uh, get repeat PCR testing, confirm that that donor was negative for the virus. Um, now they had to have obviously had it previously with a confirmed test. Um, and we had to kind of figure out all the little details in order to collect convalescent plasma, uh, which was a, had a few steps that were different than collecting kind of regular plasma, which is something we do all the time. So from about the time we got that call to the time we actually got the initial product in hand was about eight hours. So I have to commend my team that they just all worked so hard to manage to get this all together so quickly. And then we actually had to wait another 24 hours after that because uh, one of the required steps in the process is to make sure that that product, the convalescent plasma, still is negative for all of the infectious diseases that we always test for with every blood donation. And so those samples had to be gotten on a plane, which there were reduced flights, and sent to the centralized testing center that does all of this testing. Um, We had to wait for those test results to come back before we could actually send the product over to the university. So that was actually the longest delay in getting this convalescent plasma to that patient. Wow, and this is still all in well under two days. And it's so important to get it quickly because you're talking about a patient who is very, very sick. Um, As you said, that this was an investigative treatment or it's considered an investigative treatment by the FDA. Were you conflicted at all when you were faced with the decision of whether or not to get involved with this? For me, the only conflict about whether or not to get involved in it was actually a different question in that being a donor center at a children's hospital, what was my role in providing, in potentially providing convalescent plasma, knowing that it would be unlikely that many or even any of the patients at the children's hospital would end up needing it. But it became apparent once I got the call from my colleague that this was a need in the community, and it's so important to Children's Hospital Colorado to be participating in the community and and helping um, our community partners through this epidemic, this pandemic that we uh, we decided that we were going to go ahead and kind of ramp up production on this anyway. Because even though it's an investigational drug, I believe that it works. Um, there needs to be more evidence of that, but I do think that it's the right product to make available in the community. And so from a ethical standpoint, I didn't have any qualms about getting this going. And tell us about the results that you're seeing in this plasma that, like we've said, it has the antibodies of somebody who's already fought off the virus. So it does 
seem to be working, and that's kind of an anecdotal response. Um, the feedback I've gotten from uh, the patients that have received convalescent plasma um, or from the physicians who are taking care of the patients who've received convalescent plasma uh, have reported that it does seem to be helping. Um, and we've seen, we've heard of some very dramatic responses, and we've seen some more slow responses. Um, so we do think that this is a very powerful option uh, for patients. That being said, until there's a true, you know, well-done randomized controlled trial looking at uh, convalescent plasma versus non-convalescent plasma or some other um, substitute um, as a control, we really can't definitively say that it is working or that or at what time point in a course of treatment is the ideal time to give it. Now, as much hope as there is in plasma transfusion as a treatment, it's not a guarantee. One of the convalescent plasma patients UC Health was treating, Scott Kaplan, died Saturday night. What does this tell us about the treatment's effectiveness at this point in your research? Well, no treatment is ever 100% effective. I mean, if you think about other disease processes that we struggle to treat, I mean, we have some very effective chemotherapeutic regimens, but they don't always work. Um, Even antibiotics don't always manage to fight off an infection. So unfortunately, um, you know, that's, my heart goes out to the, to Scott Kaplan's family. Um, But unfortunately, no treatment is ever going to be 100% effective. Hmm. Now, you mentioned timing. How important is the timing of the transfusion based on when plasma is donated and the state of the infection in the recipient? Those are some questions that we're actively investigating right now. One of the uh, things that I'm looking at from the donor perspective is actually monitoring their levels of antibodies as they come in um, and kind of correlating that with how long it's been since they were sick, um, you know, some other demographic factors such as, you know, age um, and the severity of their symptoms to see if any of those factors create a higher level of antibodies to potentially transfuse into a recipient from the recipient side, there's a wide range of studies that have been put in place right now that are looking at a bunch of different time points. We have studies that are looking at patients who are critically ill. We have patients that are um, getting it kind of at the point when they might need ventilation, when they have severe respiratory distress, but um, are getting convalescent plasma in hopes that it kind of blunts their need to end up on a ventilator. Um, and there's even some randomized controlled trials that are looking at giving convalescent plasma uh, as a post-exposure prophylaxis in people who are uh, very high risk. So they would actually, once they know they've been exposed, maybe they were a healthcare worker or another frontline worker, um, they have underlying risk factors that could, would predispose them to having a more severe course of COVID-19. And then they would get the convalescent plasma to maybe prevent them from really getting sick at all or maybe giving them a milder disease course. And who can be a donor for this? So right now the requirements are that someone has to have had a confirmed positive PCR test, so a confirmed virus test. Um, And then they have to have been symptom-free for 14 days. Um, After that 14 days, they're eligible to donate convalescent plasma. Um, And then we do run an antibody test that we've developed at Children's to confirm that they have uh, the presence of the correct kind of antibodies. Um, At this time, we're not accepting donors who have had only an antibody test. I know those have kind of popped up across the United States now, um, and there may be a pathway for that in the future, but right now we are requiring a viral-confirmed PCR test in order to have someone be eligible. 
And then uh, the donor has to pass all of the normal blood donation criteria um, like they would just for a regular blood donation. And I know for the antibody tests in general across the U.S., there's a a lot of trouble with false positives. Um, Is that why you aren't accepting them? That's exactly why. One of the challenges is the reliability of those tests. Um, There's a wide range of reliability. Um, You know, we may consider using our own in-house test only. So we're kind of trying to determine what the best course of action is to be able to open up more eligibility for convalescent plasma donors. But it's really important to make sure that whoever we collect does have a really good, robust antibody response in that plasma because that's going to be what's best for the patient. And so I'm making the decisions about who is eligible based on that criteria. Now, I want to bring in Tom Nern, who has donated plasma twice at Children's Colorado, once on March 26th and again April 4th. Tom, welcome. Thanks so much. Tom, you were one of the first people to donate plasma. What was it that made you want to participate? Well, yeah, I always want to help out uh, other people, as as everyone does in, in, in society. But I had an employee who used to work for me for, for about 10 years. And uh, her husband, who I also coached football with, Jeremy Davis, actually uh, passed away from the uh, COVID virus. And he had it about the same time I did. And uh, just a wonderful family. And, you know, so he, you know, he left his uh, his wife and his three kids. And, you know... It's just it just seemed like the right thing to do. Tom, I'm so sorry for the loss of your friend. Tell us about what it was like to go through the process of donation. It was pretty uh, straightforward. Uh, I did have to go in for a uh, a second test to make sure I was negative. And once you kind of get into the uh, uh, children's hospital facilities, they ask you about uh, 40 questions. And uh, really, just a wonderful, sweet uh, team of. Uh, uh, people they have over there, and they set you up and give you a nice warm blanket, a little bit of juice, and you're pretty good to go. Now, I understand that you have thick blood or thicker hemoglobin because you live up in the mountains in Edwards at 7,200 feet. Was that a problem? You know, um, it, it, it it was a bit. Uh, apparently, my blood was a little too thick, and fortunately, I'm, uh, when we were kind of going through the test, uh, we were stuck for a while, but I'm married to a very smart uh, dermatologist, and she... Uh, suggested that I start drinking water. So about six bottles of uh, water later and a little uh, walking through the uh, blood donation center, uh, we actually got my uh, hemoglobin down to a level in which uh, they could take, I guess if it's too high, it's kind of stuck in the machine. So, yeah. Dr. Annan, even though Tom has recovered and is a plasma donor, it doesn't mean he's immune to COVID-19. Is that right? We don't know for sure what having antibodies means as far as long-term immunity for COVID-19. You know, the idea behind the presence of antibody, particularly IgG, which is what we're looking for um, in our plasma donors, um, is kind of historically what we believe confers immunity. Um, You know, if we were to develop a vaccine for COVID, which hopefully we will soon, Um, the idea would be that you would make antibodies to the vaccine, um, and then that would then protect you from the disease. Um, But I have heard reports of people being reinfected with COVID. I don't know if they had an underlying immune dysfunction that made that possible. Um, But right now, we really don't know for sure whether or not having antibodies does, in fact, make you immune to the virus. It may make you immune to the virus if it's temporary if those antibodies will wane or if um, it's a long-term protective change. 
There's still just so much we're learning. And Dr. Anden, can you tell us about the scope of this so far? How many donors and how many patients have been treated with convalescent plasma? So, I mean, nationwide, it's probably in the thousands at this point. I can tell you that um, here at Children's, we have collected 156 donors. Uh, we've uh, That's resulted in 326 units. We can collect anywhere from one to four units per donor, so that's why that's a different number. Um, and then we've actually transfused it to 148 different recipients. The majority of those have gone to facilities in Colorado. We've given it to 17 different facilities here in Colorado. Um, and then we actually just sent a shipment um, to our friends over in Utah because they were having some trouble getting uh, convalescent plasma from their suppliers. We actually just started shipping out of state as well. Now, Tom, I understand that you're going to give plasma a third time. Do you ever know who your plasma is going to? <laughs> no. It's actually kind of, kind of nice that you, you don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of a, uh, you know, um, a hyper-political environment. And, and you know, I, I think this is just a, a very nice way to, to, to give it to whomever needs it. And I, I'm just happy to, to give it to anybody because, I mean, uh, they're in dire straits and they need help. And, uh, you know, you just can't walk by. you gotta, you got to bend over and, and lend a hand. And that's the way I think society should be. I think that's a beautiful perspective. Dr. Annan, what role do you think blood banks play in making this a possible widespread treatment? I think that uh, blood banks are kind of experiencing a little bit of a challenge right now. I'm very fortunate, um, and one of the reasons why I've been able to be uh, successful early on with collecting convalescent plasma is that I have an in-house lab. We were able to bring donors in and test them in-house and then bring them through the rest of the process. I know that it's been a challenge for some of the larger blood centers because they don't have that aspect. They don't have kind of the the, P, the pre-PCR testing act aspect available to help them. Um, do these collections. Um, now, the FDA just did change our guidelines um, as of last week, so now we no longer have to have that second PCR test as a requirement. So um, that will hopefully open up the ability for people to donate directly at those centers more uh, quickly um, and, um, have, and have it um, a much more dramatic increase in the ability to produce convalescent plasma. One of the things I think that's also a big advantage for some of the larger blood centers that will be critical in providing convalescent plasma across the nation is that they have much better abilities to kind of widely distribute across state lines. Uh, Children's Hospital Colorado is a self-sufficient blood center. We collect 97% of our own blood, and we pretty much provide all of our blood only to our own patients um, up until now with convalescent plasma. So, it's a new. It's new for us to actually be shipping across state lines um, for any reason, and um, I think that places like the American Red Cross and Vitalant um, have the ability to send plasma wherever it's needed because they have that process set up already. And it sounds like, based on what you're saying, you're still asking for patients who have had COVID-19 to donate. That's correct. Um, and Dr. Annan, I understand there is also still a need for regular blood donation during this time as well. Is that right? That's correct. There's been a nationwide blood shortage since COVID-19 has hit. Um, some states have been hit really hard. I know California and Washington had up to a 30% decrease in their blood donations. People were a little afraid to come to donation centers or hospitals to donate for a while there. 
Um, but it is still really necessary to have blood donation just for supporting, you know, people who have leukemia, uh, or, you know, cardiac surgeries. All of those things are still happening and blood is still needed for those. So if you can't donate convalescent plasma, um, being a regular blood donor is just as valuable to us. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Tom and Dr. Annan. Thank you. Dr. Kyle Annan is the Medical Director of Transfusion Services and Patient Blood Management at the Children's Hospital Blood Donation Center. Tom Nern has recovered from COVID-19 and is a convalescent plasma donor. Today is the one-year anniversary of the shooting at STEM School Highlands Ranch, which killed one student and injured eight. This was a time that students and staff were expecting to spend together, observing the day with acts of kindness in the school and community. Now, because of COVID-19, physical togetherness is impossible. We decided to move forward and make it a virtual week where we would invite our students, our staff, families, Um, But then we were also going to invite the community to take part. That's Nicole Bostel, communications manager at STEM School Highlands Ranch. She says the effort is marked by the hashtag STEM shares. They divided it into three categories, acts of service, kindness, and donation. Part of how we do our curriculum at STEM is we do what's called problem-based learning. And so this environment that we're in right now actually is a very, it's a good learning environment for our students because our teachers are incorporating some of the problems that we're facing and presenting them to the students to say, how can we use the, you know, the math standards that you're learning or the science standards, all of those things to solve a current problem. Some families have helped homebound neighbors or adopted a graduating senior to shower them with gifts and notes. One sixth grader made a video tutorial to help others sew cloth masks, which they can donate to first responders. First thing you're going to want to do is take your sheet of whatever cloth you're using and fold it in half and then sew this top part. The school has also provided a list of local businesses that supported them after the shooting, encouraging people to write thank you notes and use their services. It means so much to be able to give back to those that were there for us on that day and even following. Um, We had so many businesses that reached out to us during that time, provided us with resources, um, food, and even childcare, and just the opportunity for us to spread kindness, I think it's just so important for our students and our staff and our families in the healing process. Nicole Bostel, communications manager at STEM School Highlands Ranch, today marks one year since the shooting that killed one student there. The school is asking people to share their acts of service this week with the hashtag STEMshares. This week, voters in Pueblo overwhelmingly rejected a measure that would have formed a city-run electrical utility. Supporters said it would lead to cheaper electricity bills and more renewable energy, key in the effort to battle climate change. But voters didn't go for it. CPR's Grace Hood joins us now to talk about the election and what it means. Hi, Grace. Hey there. How did supporters of this measure think establishing a city-owned utility would allow renewable energy to develop faster? 
Back in uh, February 2017, Pueblo City Council voted to set a 100% renewable energy goal. Their argument back then was a little different compared to towns like Boulder. Pueblo wanted cheaper utility bills. And back then, discussions emerged about breaking away from Black Hills Energy, which at the time was slowly working towards adding more wind and solar. Supporters of the measure 2A said they could provide wind and solar more cheaply than traditional energy sources provided by Black Hills. Why didn't voters buy that argument? Well, you know, even though at face value, wind and solar are cheaper compared to coal and many times natural gas, Pueblo had to buy all the poles, the wires, the transmission lines from Black Hill Energy, and that cost is millions of dollars to do that. So even though proponents argued that they could lower electricity bills by as much as 18 percent, I think it was just hard for voters to square, you know, that concept with the idea that the city would have to shell out millions to create a utility. Now, 76 percent of voters rejected the ballot issue. What's your sense of why the margin was so big? Yeah, great question. I mean, by many accounts, people thought it would be kind of close. But I think when you look at campaign spending, the margin makes more sense. The opposition had $1.5 million. That's compared to supporters who had about $31,000. But, you know, ultimately nobody knew how the stay-at-home order would impact voting and turnout under COVID-19. Now, turnout appears to be equal to possibly a shade above other special elections. How did Pueblo even process ballots in the age of COVID-19? Well, many election workers wore masks. Some even had PPE. Uh, You know, if if folks used pens or clipboards, they were disinfected between uses by voters. Uh, You know, if you think about the TV commercials, the advertisements, and the fact that this debate has just been raging since early 2017 when the city declared a 100% renewable energy goal, the turnout does kind of make sense. People are really interested in, in weighing in on this. So where does Pueblo go from here? Yeah, you know, if uh, there was one winner Tuesday night, it was renewable energy, I think. Right now, Black Hills plans for 60% of its Southern Colorado generation portfolio to come from carbon-free resources over the next three years. Uh, you know, anytime you've got a heated campaign like this, you've got fences to mend. Uh, proponents talked a lot in their speeches Tuesday night uh, after they lost to a about respecting the message from voters. And I think the big place to watch is Pueblo City Council. The issue was so contentious. City Council was so divided. So, you know, we're just going to be watching to see if some of the contentious issues, uh, you know, on council or, you know, they mend those fences. It'll be interesting to watch. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Grace. Thank you. CPR energy reporter Grace Hood discussing a special election in Pueblo aiming at forming a municipal utility there. A resounding majority of voters rejected the plan Tuesday. When we come back, a new podcast about love taking its cue from the pandemic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR's photojournalists have received awards for the work they do every day, giving visual context for vital stories. 
Hart Van Denberg from CPR News. In some ways, you have the luxury to think about how to cover a story in a thoughtful way. And Kevin Beatty from Denverite. My job is to make art for news, and it's awesome. <laughs> Look for award-winning photojournalism from Colorado Public Radio at denverite.com and cpr.org. When Denver podcasters need studio space or people to bounce ideas off of, they often turn to House of Pod, a Denver-based audio production company. Its founder, Kat Jaffe, wants to create a podcast of her own, and the COVID-19 pandemic, in a way, created the perfect circumstance. She interviewed hundreds of single people across the United States and matched them for virtual dates on her podcast, Lovesick. Kat, thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi, thanks for having me. Lovesick released its first episode in April. You and your co-host introduced some of the people who you'll match over the coming season. What's the plan from here? Well, in the next few days, we'll be releasing our first date, so folks will be able to hear what we're offering. But we've got a lot of exciting things in store. Part of the vision behind the podcast is not just matching people, but giving folks cool ideas for how to virtually date from their homes. Right, because we can't go meet each other in this day and age. So give me an idea of one of the what one of these virtual dates might look like. Okay, well, <laughs> I hope uh, my producer Paul does not get upset that I'm giving this sneak peek. But uh, an example is we did one of the dates was a virtual tour of the Blue House in Mexico City, Casa Azul, where Frida Kahlo lived. And we ran a scavenger hunt through the house where daters had to find different items in the house that prompted particular questions for them to answer about themselves. And then we finished the date where they gave a tour of their own homes and explained kind of whether they were more of a Frida Kahlo or a Marie Kondo. (laughs) So there's a lot of virtual travel, even if you're in your own living room. Um, You and your co-host, Paul Crowley. Oh, Oh, go ahead. ahead. Oh, well, you know, part of it is also... Uh, it's very easy to repeat the same date over and over again, especially when you're not going anywhere. So we wanted to create creative prompts for people to be able to not just answer interesting questions about themselves uh, to other prospective daters, but also for them to be like, oh, yeah, I'm, I am, I'm interesting. I'm more than just this box that I'm in. I had another life before that, all because I can't leave it. doesn't mean that it, it didn't happen, you know? I really like that. Uh, You and your co-host, Paul Corolli, you're not matchmakers by trade. So to get to know these folks, you conduct interviews. What do you look for to make decisions about matching them? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) we are definitely not matchmakers. And some of it is a little random, but uh, we're looking for similarities, anything from favorite, um, you know, we ask a lot of questions like favorite films, favorite podcasts, favorite books. People have a way of writing about themselves and what they're looking for in people that just has an, an essence, for lack of a better word, that, um, that, that speaks to certain compatibility. Um, additionally, when we do these pre-interviews, we really are diving deep. Some of the questions we ask is, you know, what is one moment in your life that has come to define who you are today? And that question really does reveal for a lot of people what's most important to them. And so we can kind of suss out through a lot of the soft stuff um, what is at the heart of, of what's beating for people and what they want to look for. And um, so far, 
we have done a number of dates, and we've had we've had successful matches for all of them except for one. So that's going to be an interesting episode. <laughs> <laughs> I like that idea, though. You're kind of like getting beyond what you might necessarily get to on a first date just through these pre-interviews. Yeah. Um, I mean, and what does this show bring to me? dating? Oh. Sorry, please. Oh, I'm so sorry. We have a no. delay on this phone line, and so I keep That's talking okay. over you. Um, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, people get very excited by the prospect that we have hundreds of folks just in this little pool. And so they want to tell me the most detailed or interesting or strange thing they possibly can in, in hopes that I'll match them well. So it's nice because we're on the same side, whereas I don't even, I don't know if that's always the case when you're dating someone. Um, it, there have been dates that we've sat on where it's like people are interviewing each other and we don't want to really create that environment. We we really want to create something where it's like we've we've already done that. We've vetted you guys and we know there's something special there. So, you know, go explore by all means, but it's not, you know, it's, there's really something to be said when someone's been chosen for you. And, and I think folks are very excited by that. Yeah, that's something really different than in the kind of the anonymity that's on dating apps a lot of the time. Uh, what does a show bring to dating that didn't exist before? Oh, geez. That's a great question. Uh, <laughs> well, okay, I am in my 30s and I'm single, so I've dated a lot. That's one of the reasons why I'm the host. Um, and I would say now that I spend a lot of my time sitting in the background on these dates, kind of quietly listening, some things that are different, especially through our show, is that we are kind of like these dating fairies that will throw in props. Like we know a lot of the information about the daters that they don't know. So we'll be throwing in prompts or questions or, or different kind of surprises on the date that we're hoping will create an optimal or exciting or explorative environment for people when normally when you're dating, there's not like a little fairy there that's dropping in these crumbs for you to kind of find these <laughs> these exciting things. There aren't people rooting for you behind the scenes. Um, and we're, we're, Paul and I are also very objective. Like We're not setting up our friends. We are finding complete strangers. Um, a lot of the people who have applied are from New York City, interestingly enough. So here we are in Denver, matchmaking for people in Brooklyn that we do not know about, you know, their cleaning habits or their I don't know. We don't know a lot of the random things, but what we do know is that they are good people through our basic conversations we've had, and and we're on their side. We're hoping they're going to find somebody interesting, at least for a cool connection during this time. So that I think is pretty different to have like an advocate there with you. So lovesick brings the dating fairies. Um, this gives an example, uh, or let's get an example of somebody who's on this dating app that isn't working. Uh, it's not working for them to go on a regular date during the pandemic. Like you said, there are a lot of folks in New York. Georgia from episode one, uh, she normally lives in New York, but she's spending this pandemic where she grew up a small town in Rhode Island. I know or am related to a great deal of people in this town. So there's no, <laughs> it's more just a curiosity thing when I, when I look at dating apps here. <laughs> I've got to know, where did the idea for a love and matchmaking show come from? Yeah, that's such a great question. Well, um, so Paul Caroli, who's the producer of the show, he has such a great story, um, which you can hear in that first episode, 
where he describes being in college, and I'm not going to do it justice, so please tune in, but he essentially is working at a college radio station, and there is a an individual who has a show that he can hear over the, the phone, or he can hear, I'm sorry, over the radio, and that person's host doesn't show up, and he decides to go in, he pretends he lost a book, he asks that individual um, to help him find his fake lost book, and she invites him on the show to be his co-host, and their first real conversation is on the air. And that person um, is Megan and ends up being Paul's wife. And now, you know, seven plus years later, they're married. And Paul has always wanted to do a reality podcast of sorts. And we had this idea like a year ago. It was called Sounds Hot. We were going to set people up on dates over audio here in Denver. We were really excited about doing local shows. Um, But we couldn't figure out the legality of it. And then uh, basically this happened, COVID-19 happened, and we realized, well, the thing we've been missing all along to keep people in a place where we felt could be really safe and supportive, but also um, not out necessarily in a public place, um, obviously, was COVID-19. This way, people could date virtually from their homes. We wouldn't have to worry if the date didn't go well or someone was creepy. Um, And we have a rule on the show that Nothing, no details can be revealed that is Googleable. So sometimes people will go by the first letter of their name or just their first name. They won't reveal where they work. Um, so it, it, it can be that safe environment. Our, our, uh, for me, when the trailer for the show launched, um, I found out that I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, um, which has been really uncomfortable during less than ideal during COVID-19 for sure. Um, basically, my full diagnosis came the day that Governor Polis put us in a shelter in place. And so I not only am I very much in my home during all this, but even as things start opening up, I start chemo on Monday. So I am going to wow. be uh, in a quarantine situation for longer, I think, than many of my friends. And that's really also changed my perspective about dating and people dating who maybe could can't or don't feel comfortable on the apps. I know, like, since when it started, I tried out an app or two, and I'd tell people that I was recently diagnosed with cancer, but, um, you know, it's, it's it was early and that I have a six-month treatment plan, and people would just ghost me right off the bat. And I'm really excited about creating that safe environment, as I said, where we are interviewing people, we're curating, we're being really mindful, and then we're making it possible for people to to date when they don't have necessarily the same access to public spaces that we used to, and it kind of hopefully will level the playing field and make things more inclusive than they were before. I'm so sorry that you're dealing with cancer in the middle of all this. <laughs> how has that changed the way that you see dating now, and how do you anticipate it changing how you see it even after your treatment? Yeah, you know, it's. I think for a lot of people right now, there are three things that we're really all worried about. Um, and one is the health of ourselves and our family. The other is, um, you know, economics. Like, do you have a job? How are you now? And then, and then the third is love. Um, are you in this alone? Are you in this with a partner? Is that marriage relationship stressed? Are you know? There's so there's those three categories, right? It's like your your health and wellness, of, and then your economics, and then your love life. And um, I feel like all three of mine are kind of problematic right now uh, because my business is under threat, and my um, 
love life is non-existent and then I have cancer. But the beauty of that, and I think the, the, to your question, the perspective that I'm bringing to this is that I'm in the trenches with a lot of the people who come on the show. Um, I, I know where they're coming from, and I'm, we're not looking for people who are these, like, perfect dating profiles. We're looking people for people with stories who have... Kat, I hate to wrap you here, but we're about yeah. to run out of time on our show. Okay. Uh, okay. Thank you so much for joining us and for telling us more about Lovesick. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Kat Jaffe is founder of House of Pod in Denver and started the podcast Love Sick with her co-host Paul Caroli. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.